The average age of an RV owner in the United States is 32 years old. That's down from 62 years old about 10 to 12 years ago. So it's all millennials. Also, last year, over 450 for 470,000 new RVs were sold, yet only 17,000 new pads were built. So there's a huge supply-demand imbalance that's compounding year after year. People are choosing to put their equity on wheels as opposed to, you know, with where interest rates are and live a more nomadic lifestyle. What is up, everybody? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. As always, I am your host, Taylor Lote, and today we are joined by Ben Spiegel. Ben is a real estate investor who today is focusing on investing in luxury RV communities. He has quite the track record in the investment space, having deployed over $500 million for various firms. Today, we're going to dig into his background in real estate investing, why he's focusing on luxury RV communities today, and so much more. Ben, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Really excited to dig into this topic. RV communities have grown in popularity in at least some niche in the real estate investing space, but you didn't start there. Tell us about your experience investing in real estate before you got into RV communities. Yeah, absolutely. I started after college. I started working at Barclays Capital Investment Bank. I worked in their custom credit division, underwriting unique assets like private planes, yachts, art, wine for unique loans. I was there for about a year before I moved to a credit opportunities hedge fund where they invested in leveraged loans, high yield bonds, and other asset-backed securities. Then I moved to another credit opportunities hedge fund for, and I was there for about four or five years investing in more distressed real estate heavy companies like bowling alleys. I played a big role in the uh, bankruptcy and restructuring of the company that's now Bowmore AMF, the largest bowling alley operation in the United States. I got my start in real estate. I started doing well from a, a relatively young age and I started buying very small buildings with my bonuses. Two units, four, you know, four apartments over a deli, Back when you could buy something like that for two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand, I'd get you know eighty. I put in you know eighty grand to get you know two twenty from the bank, something like that. And you know, over a course of my career at DG Capital, which was the second hedge fund I worked at, I accumulated a small portfolio, about thirty to forty unit amongst six or seven buildings. And one day, I got a call from Signature Bank, which no longer exists, which went bankrupt earlier this year. And they had a non-performing loan cross-collateralized by eight buildings, eight or nine buildings, comprised of about one hundred and forty-seven units. Basically, it was they had already initiated bankruptcy and a UCC foreclosure, and they asked me if I would have any interest in purchasing it. And my first answer, I, it was, I hesitated because I, I loved what I, I was doing, working at a hedge fund. I was making good money. But long story short, I ended up going to my boss and saying, if you'll stake me and you think this is a great idea, I'll, I'm going to buy it. And you know, basically, given that he knew I was already very interested in real estate, having purchased seven or eight buildings before, he gave me the first the first allocation to to buy that portfolio. And then I, I went out and got note-on-note note financing, took the buildings through bankruptcy and emerged, put property management in place, grew revenue about 40 to 50 percent, 
as well as NOI. And uh, so this was back in uh, 2006, late 2016 or early 2017. And by early 2019, I sold the buildings for a very hefty profit. So that's when back in 2000, late 2016, early 2017 is when I established Redwood Capital Advisors, which is a boutique real estate, private equity and syndication firm where we focus on micro market assets. Uh, so usually between three and 15 million buildings that are too small for uh, high net or too small for institutions, but too big for high net worth. And another big part of our strategy is we acquire the vast majority of our buildings off market, owner direct or pocket listings. Uh, a rule of thumb we have is if it's on the internet, we're not buying because basically you have no asymmetric information flow at that point. And that you have, so basically the only thing you can control in real estate is your cost basis. You know, I've accumulated a portfolio. It's gone up and down in size, you know, maximum probably about three or 400 units. Uh, now it's on the smaller side, probably about 150 units. I own everything from medical offices to multifamily to mixed use to industrial. I like to call myself asset agnostic as long as I can understand the cash flows and the you know the projections and you know basically what's called you know how the cash flows are going to be coming in the future. I'm okay buying it. I think that way you're able to keep a larger deal pipeline going as opposed to sticking to one particular asset class like multifamily, which a lot of other investors do, I think that really limits your opportunity set. And so I've been doing this now for about six or seven years. I've deployed a, a good amount of money. And about a year and a half ago, I met a guy at, a con at a, uh, an RV conference. He was the keynote speaker. Very impressive guy. I, I've, I've worked with a lot of consultants throughout my days at hedge funds. And this was probably one of the most impressive guys I've ever heard talk about any kind of asset class I've ever heard. You know, basically five days after that conference, I'm on a plane down to Alabama to meet with him. And long, not long after that, we established a joint venture to start investing in the new development of luxury RV destinations in the Southeast. You know, I still also have my Northeast business, which is going well, but my main focus right now is on the development of new luxury RV uh, communities. So what was so compelling about luxury RV communities that made you say, okay, I'm adding this to my portfolio or I'm going to begin focusing and building my business around this luxury RV community space. What's so compelling about them? Yeah. So not a lot of people really know this, but uh, the average age of an RV owner in the United States is 32 years old. That's down from 62 years old, about 10 to 12 years ago. So it's all millennials. Also last year, over 450 for 470,000 new RVs were sold, yet only 17,000 new pads were built. So there's a huge supply-demand imbalance that's compounding year after year. And basically, when you throw, throw into that, that basically 60% of office workers that are now fully remote, people are choosing to put their equity on wheels as opposed to, you know, with where interest rates are and live a more nomadic lifestyle. And the problem is the average RV destination is over 40 years old. And 85, 90% of the industry is still owned by mom and pop. 
without the resources to invest in the necessary capex to really upgrade these facilities to the standards that the new class of RV destination tenants want. And basically, it really boils down, it's not complicated. Basically, you need to provide a destination that number one is safe, number two is quiet, and basically three has cell service and Wi-Fi, fiber cable, and, you know, a few amenities on top of that, uh, a pool, a few pickleball courts, a community center, bathrooms, but it, it's, it's not rocket science. And, uh, you know, it, we, we really like the Southeast just with where the economic growth is coming from. We're primarily focusing on Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, the RV business, RV destination, or the RV uh, travel business is growing by a compounding growth rate of five to seven percent a year and it's slow it's no showing no slime it's not just slowing down and you know from a geographic perspective the southeast has two things that the rest of the country don't have power and water so for example you can't even build a factory in certain parts of the country anymore because there's just not enough water and so you're seeing a huge migration of not only wealth but population to these areas and uh, basically, we found that uh, if you're able to offer a competitive product, like I described before, you're not going to have a hard time filling up. I mean, just to conclude, even the most disgusting RV destinations down there are, are at 90 plus occupancy. So on that topic of the supply demand imbalance and the locations where you can develop and where people are heading, how do you approach the problem of identifying where there is that unmet demand for a luxury RV community. I mean, there's maybe a, a broad average supply demand imbalance, but in general, supply demand is, is local, right? We need to be where the people are. So how do you identify the spaces where the areas where that demand is unmet? So Taylor, to be honest, actually, there's five different RV types of RV destinations. You have campgrounds, you have parks, you have resorts, you have communities, and hybrid. The three most popular now are resorts, communities, and hybrid. Basically, they've all emerged within the past 10 years. So resorts are usually next to some type of some type of event, you know, some uh, Disney World or uh, some other type of major attraction, or it might be on like right on the water, you know. The, but the problem with resorts is uh, you need double the staff, and on top of that, your average stay is only about four to six days at a time. So you have much higher turnover, and your operating expenses are, are really bloated. And in an area in an industry where it's extremely difficult to hire good management. Like my partner says, you can't hire loyalty. We're trying, constantly trying to implement new ways to, to do that. It, you have a lot of turnover and it just, you're able to charge a 20 to 30% premium to communities, but maybe even a 40% premium. But in, in my experience, unless you have a real, you have, you found a piece of land with an amazing location like a truly amazing location, it, it, it's really not worth it. We at Redwood focus on luxury communities. 
which is where people choose to stay to live for a, a, lo- or a longer period of time. So our, our average stay is about 75 to 90 days. Communities, on the other hand, they still offer you know, select amenities like the ones you would probably find in a townhome complex or an apartment building like pickleball courts, a resort-style pool, community center, baths, convenience store. But you're at a community, you're looking at a, a 60% operating margin compared to about 45 on a resort. So location is everything. You know, even though you're in the hospitality business, it's location. So you want to be, you know, you want to be near an interstate. You want to be at the, you want to be 20 feet above sea level for insurance purposes. Also, you, you really want to try to avoid any kind of wetlands because uh, the Army Civil Corps of Engineers are, are, are just very difficult to deal with. It could take two years to, to, to just suck, get rid of them. And uh, it also helps when you have someone that's really been involved in the municipality for a long time like we do. Uh, you know, he's been in uh, Mobile, Alabama for about 20 years and uh, has built multiple RV uh, communities. And, uh, you know, basically that carries a lot of weight in uh, an area down there. Uh, but those are some of the, you want, you want to, and you have to be within 10, one of our, my like rules about really any kind of property I buy is you got to be within 10 miles of a Walmart because the Walmarts have the most sophisticated population trend technology in the world. And if you're not with if you're not within ten miles of a Walmart, you have to have a very special reason for being there, in my opinion. So when we're doing an RV destination, that that obviously still applies. You like to have a Dollar General or a supermarket close by, uh, at least an assess a bank, a liquor store, a few restaurants, you know. But you have to remember, you're bringing a lot of money and revenue into this these towns that. You know, it's a very interesting dynamic. So you're able to get uh, all kind of tax breaks and other favorable government treatments, but we can go into that later. Wow. So quite a few things there. You mentioned being within 10 miles of a Walmart, very interesting insight, 20 feet above sea level, trying to keep the Army Corps of Engineers off your back and much more. But okay, when somebody talks to me or says to me something about developing luxury blank, luxury anything. My mind tends to go to, well, say luxury apartments going to be very expensive to develop compared to something more targeted at workforce housing. You can get more revenue that way. It can make sense. But in the developing luxury RV park space, I think, well, what in the world must this cost for the pads, the plumbing, the internet, the pickleball courts, the pools, everything, all the amenities around it. What do these things typically cost to build? So you have to remember, uh, you're doing very very little vertical construction. It's primarily horizontal. You're dredging, you're laying pipe and uh, fiber optic cable. The the only vertical uh, structures that are being built are one-story community centers, convenience store, uh, the bathrooms. uh, That's really about it. And uh, so basically... I don't want you to hold me to this number because it varies with inflation around geography, different geographies, different parts of the country, and what your relationship with your general contractor is versus you know how the quantity of uh, pads you're building. But a general rule of thumb is you're looking at about forty-five to fifty thousand a pad, all in for everything for the concrete pad as well as as well as all the other uh, structures kind of amortized together. 
And that, but that's not including the land cost, but which is usually relatively inexpensive. And it's pretty crazy that uh, upon completion, there's a market that in Alabama where you can condo the pads uh, individually and sell them for between 110 and 140,000 if, um, you know, if it's a nice enough destination and it's clean and it's well run. So, the numbers are very simple. And I, I think, like I said earlier, I, I don't really like anything luxury. Uh, but, you know, the, it's, we have to get rid of this stigma that RV parks are lower middle class. That, that whole dynamic is gone. And the, you know, the, just the amount of RV sales, I mean, just the pad rates are going up year over year. They're recession resistant, and there's, they're really not going to be going down, any, in my opinion, anytime in the near future. They've held up well during the 08, 09, you know, basically consistent, you know, relatively consistent growth. And it's the average RV, for example, costs about 100, 120,000, which is not cheap. Yeah. Wow. So that's, I didn't know you could condo just the little parcel of the parking spot for the RV, essentially. And then they still have to go buy the RV. So, Definitely not uh, lower middle class. So you had mentioned a, a bit earlier things about tax incentives or, or reasons that municipalities might want to incentivize this development. And generally, when it comes to incentivizing anything, municipalities like to see that their tax base is being increased or that you're creating jobs. So there's a, a compelling reason for them to incentivize anything to happen, whether it's a real estate development or a new business or something like that. So can you walk us through what municipalities might be willing to offer under the right circumstances and what's in it for them? So I, I'd like to start with, uh, I mean, it's not necessarily a municipality, but for the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has a very unique rural loan program where you can borrow at the low market interest rates to construct an RV destination, usually at 65 to 75% loan to cost. And, you know, it's drawn over a period of 12 to 15 months because you have to remember you're not doing any vertical construction. So the amount of time it takes you to complete the RV destination as in a whole is much less. And once the, the facility is drawn full, it immediately turns into a 25-year amortizing facility at really a below market interest rate. And basically the only really requirements is that there is this, that it's in a rural, a relatively rural area where basically the population density is under a certain level. And, you know, so basically that's to start off uh, and which is really, in my opinion, financing is one of the most important things in any type of real estate transaction, especially when you're doing construction. You know, the fact that we don't have to use traditional bridge lenders that, you know, would charge us, you know, 12 to 13% and, you know, four points up front and, you know, have huge, you know, cash reserve requirements on top of it. It, it really changes the dynamic of the industry. And that uh, I'm not going to be, I'm going to be honest, it's not so easy to get. These loans are difficult to get. They take between eight to 12 months it's from when you first buy the land to when you're receiving the loan. So you have, the second you buy that piece of land, you have to be, you have to have your package ready, right? To go to the USDA immediately. 
And, and then on top of that, you know, you're going to be, if you're doing like a 300 pad development like we are, which is going to be one of the largest R- RV destinations in the country, I mean, at least one of the top 30 or 40 of its kind, you know, we're going to be hiring, you know, managers, convenience store workers, and we're going to just be, we're going to be creating jobs. And so basically we've already begun negotiations about putting, implementing a pilot. Even though the taxes down there are relatively de minimis, you know, it's a payment in lieu of taxes. Basically, you're given a very discounted rate. You know, year one, you don't pay any taxes. Year two, you don't pay any taxes. Year three, you pay, uh, you know, 20% of what you should have paid. And then it escalates from there over a 10 year period. You know, even though the taxes are, are, you know, in that area are relatively not that much of a factor, but in other areas, they are. So knowing that you can have that leverage, that hiring leverage to, uh, you know, get that pilot, it always helps. And cool. uh, yeah, I think that's really about it. Wow. So there are a few different things there. USDA providing really interesting loans that uh, I hadn't heard about that can help incentivize and make the deals uh, go more smoothly and potential property tax uh benefits as well, if you will. And then I also want to, sorry to interrupt, I forgot mm-hmm. to talk about accelerated depreciation. Basically in an LLC structure, you're able to write off 80% of the cost of constru- anything but purchasing, anything but the land purchase, pretty much any other hard construction costs, you're able to write off. And basically that net operating loss carry forward will carry with you for in the next five to six years that, you know, you're not paying any taxes on your income for a long time. And the accelerated depreciation is also, I mean, it's a not a local government incentive, but it's certainly uh, an incentive, government incentive. Nice. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Ben, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Absolutely. Great. Number one, what's your number one book recommendation? So I actually would say it's called Investment Banking by Josh Pearl. It's probably, the, uh, it used to be my Bible when I worked uh, at, on the buy side and in, and in investment banking. I'd say I learned more from that book than college and you know working at Barclays for a year combined. You know, basically it just explains everything about finance, private equity, even real estate in a very easy to digest way that makes reading it enjoyable. It's not one of these books that you read and then after you're like, I have no idea what I just read. You know, basically it's truly phenomenal. And I actually, I know the author pretty well. He's an investor in the fund, but so I don't know if I'm a little skewed towards that, but you know, it's it's investment banking by Josh Pearl. And you know, I still have it on my desk and I'll always have it. Yes. Nice. I'll have to look that one up. That's a new recommendation. Number two, who or what inspires you? Yeah. So I'd say really making my investors happy. That That's what really inspires me to do well. You know, for example, on, you know, deals over the years that uh, have not gone as planned, you know, me and my partner have, uh, you know, let's say, the, you know, IRR, you know, we were looking at, you know, a higher teens IRR and it came in lower. We basically, we do away with our promote to push the investor returns higher. 
that's how much investor satisfaction means to us because we want to be, you know, the proper stewards of capital and we want to underpromise and overdeliver. And nothing really makes me happier than making my investors happy. Nice. Question number three, think about Ben at 80 years old. What advice would 80-year-old Ben give to Ben of today? Be very frugal. Do not spend your money on materialistic items, whether it's a fancy car, a fancy house, a fancy painting. And I know it's difficult for a lot of people. Once you start making a little bit of money, you want to have nice things. But if you look at the compounding effect of money over time, just by saving, you know, not going out for coffee, saving 10 bucks a day over a year, over 10 years with that reinvested in real estate, you're, you're talking about massive amounts of money. So I'd say just really be frugal and do not really care what other people think about you in terms of materialistic items and how much money you make. Just be comfortable with yourself. Nice. Well, Ben, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing all of this knowledge. If folks want to reach out and get in touch, where can they track you down? Yeah, they can go contact me on uh, my website, which is www.redwoodcapitaladvisors.com. Or if you want to give me a call, my personal cell is 914-469-2716. Brave man putting that out there, but I appreciate that. And I appreciate you joining us today once again. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.